Good afternoon. <laughs> I'll start strategically at the point where everyone's trying to desperately swallow these sweets at the front. Um, how are you all doing? Good? Great. So a few people might be arriving in the next few minutes, but it's good to have you all towards the front um, a little bit more this time. You guys still relatively awake? Yeah, good, good. Got to last through till this evening so we can properly go for it in prayer. Um, I've been loving the conference so far. I thought it's just been absolutely brilliant. Um, just, I don't know, it's just been really special and everything seems to have linked together in some kind of, God seems to do that. Every kind of, you go to enough Christian conferences where people end up just bringing stuff and you think that, that all fits together. So I've been loving it um, and I'm also really excited today to be talking about finally how do we go about um, developing a renewed mind. So for those of you who, was, who, was anyone not here yesterday? Okay, a few. So I'll, I'll briefly summarize what we did yesterday. We're kind of doing two seminars looking at the gospel-centered thinking in a broken world. And the idea really is that the gospel is the answer to every problem. So the gospel is the answer to death. It's the, problem to in, uh, the answer to injustice, to sin, to sickness, to the whole lot, including broken thinking. And you may well have noticed that the world that we live in thinks in a very broken way. And so what we did yesterday was to look through what is it, what's the worldview, so the, what is the, the set of assumptions, like the glasses, that the world looks through at the world in order to come to the conclusions that they come to. So we kind of noted down a load of different um, actions and thoughts that the, our friends who just average, average normal people with normal jobs think and say, and we were looking at the fact that under most of the statements that we looked at that you guys came up with was the fact that God had been replaced with the idol of self which I think in the Western world is probably the idol that's underlining most of the way that people think. Um, it, might be, it might be different in other parts of the world, and it will be different for certain people in the Western world, but by and large, I think what underlines the, the way that people think in the West is God's glory has been replaced with the individual human being. And the thoughts that people come up with, the, the assumptions that they make around, about the world that allow them to say that certain things are absolutely fine without even feeling the need to defend it, ultimately come down to the fact that there's been an exchange of God's glory for human beings, or particularly the autonomous self. Um, the philosopher Charles Taylor calls the age that we live in the age of authenticity. He wrote a big book called The Secular Age, and I read a little book by a guy called James Smith who was summarizing the big book. Um, very helpfully, and he says that he, he basically says this really clever um, kind of piercing thinker called Charles Taylor looks at the world and says, we live in a secular society where we're basically in the age of authenticity. Everyone is about, I want to develop my true self. It all ultimately comes down to me, like the kind of me as a, an individual person, I want to flourish in my individual way. And I think that's really like, that's kind of looking from a very He's looking from a philosophy point of view, but I think you look at it from a biblical point of view and think that's what's happened. God's glory has been exchanged for the individual self. Um, and like Steph hinted out yesterday towards the end, actually there are lots of parts of the world where it might not be the individual self, it might be the family, or it might be the community as a whole, or it might still actually in, in lots of places literally be um, images of animals or even real life animals. Um, that might also be another one underlining certain people's thinking. But there's been an exchange that's happened and a particular way of thinking develops as a result of that. And it's not necessarily a really well thought through um, way of thinking. It's not that people have sat down and thought, what are we going to base our thinking on? They have, through their habits and desires over 
over their lives, habituated themselves to a particular way of acting and thinking, which means that now they're wearing glasses that they're looking through the world at, and things just look completely normal to them, which we might look at from a Christian and gospel-centered point of view and think, that's far from normal, but you're assuming that that's normal. Now, the scary flip side of that is we can often allow our lenses, which we're going to look at today, how do we make sure that our lenses are actually gospel-centered? We can often let our lenses become slightly distorted through various things that the world's feeding us with, and so our prescription ends up changing slightly. So we look at the world and see it ever so slightly differently in certain areas to what God might want us to see the world like. And so there's that kind of that double us understanding how the world thinks, but also being on our guard against being deceived by the ways that the world thinks, and that just becoming ingrained. Because once you, I mean, contact lenses might be a better illustration, because you can kind of, if you really focus, you can see the rims around the glasses. Contacts, once they're in, you, you, would, you just don't think about it. They're on. They're there. And you look at the world through it, and we've got to make sure we're able to discern, are we looking at the world sometimes through lenses that don't actually line up with what the Bible says and with what the gospel says? That's what we looked at yesterday, and we saw the fact that the gospel was the answer to that. Because it's not that everyone thinks in a completely wrong way about everything. So we don't go up to a maths teacher who's not a Christian and say, your maths is completely flawed because you've exchanged the glory of God for, um, for, uh, for humans. You go up to them and you say, your maths is correct on this point, but actually underlining all of your thought patterns is ultimately a, a shaky foundation. So we use the, the idea of trying to set up a dinner party on a bouncy castle. You might have all the little bits and bobs that are there that need to be at dinner party, but they're on a bouncy castle foundation, which is not going to stand well. And through the gospel being proclaimed as an alternative story, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes, and when the gospel collides, the story of the gospel collides with the stories that people tell themselves subconsciously to make sense of the world. When God's Holy Spirit breathes on that, suddenly people who had assumed the world was a particular way suddenly assume that it's a completely different thing. And that's what we, we desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit for proclaiming the gospel. So that's kind of where we ended yesterday. Basically ended up saying, our job as Christians is not actually, it's to do a really good job of making sure we're listening to people and connecting the story of the gospel with them. But ultimately, our job is to proclaim as faithfully as we can and as helpfully as we can the alternative narrative of the gospel. And then by the Holy Spirit, God illuminates people's eyes and minds to see that it's true. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's God's power. And there's something that the lights go on, whether that feels like a, a gradual thing or it feels like an instantaneous thing, depending on what, what your conversion story was like. The lights went on at one point, and suddenly something that looked completely ridiculous in certain areas looked like God's wisdom. And so off the back of that, we're going to think through, now that we're kind of, we are, we were this side of the baptismal pool, so thinking as the world thinks, we've gone through the waters of baptism, we've repented, we've trusted in Christ, he has, through the Holy Spirit, he's changed the way we think. We come out the other side of the baptismal pool, how do we now think, is what we're going to look at today. How do we go about figuring out what it looks like to think in a gospel-centered way. Because in Romans 12, so if you remember, we looked at Romans 1 yesterday, right at the beginning, Paul saying, Every, this is all that's gone wrong with humanity. If you read the rest of Romans all the way up to Romans 12, Paul is explaining, Here is how, here's how God's gone about solving the problem, which in part was a problem of a darkened mind. And you reach through various amazing stories from kind of chapter 3 onwards, you reach chapter 8 where Paul says, Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
purpose, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And goes on to say that we walk by the spirit, not by the flesh. And those who walk by the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. So the darkened mind that we had as a problem in Romans 1 has been dealt with through the gospel. But then at the, at the beginning of Romans 12, Paul turns to kind of, after I suppose what you could say is a big kind of theological treatise that he's writing, um, for the first 11 chapters, he says this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So after all of this, Paul said, your mind as a Christian, through the work of the Spirit, your ve- the very basis of your thinking has changed. That is, it is impossible for a person who has not received the Spirit of God to think in a completely gospel-centered way. It's, it is impossible. Paul says that. The natural person cannot understand the things of God. You need a renewed mind. You need a, a new mind that God gives you when you trust in him, when you're baptized in him, when he changes your heart, whichever perspective you want to look at it. You get a new mind. But Paul says we have a responsibility to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So you get given, I mean, you've, so you get given a load of seeds, for example. You're not just going to look at the seeds and think, that's great, I've been given seeds. Your job is to take the seeds, to plant them, and to water them, and to care for them. And actually, we get given, as we'll see in a bit, the mind of Christ, or the mindset of Christ, and our responsibility as Christians is through the power of the Spirit, to cultivate right ways of thinking, which mean that actually when you're in various situations and you're discussing things with people or you are presented with particular choices to make, after a lifetime of renewing your mind, what would have originally taken ages to try and think through and, and, and figure out, you just have this mindset where you see things in a gospel-centered way. And that's what we're looking at. We're, we're looking at today, how do we go from um, suddenly receiving these seeds or receiving these new glasses and getting to the point where our prescription helps us to see completely in line with the way that God sees things. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And what I'd like to do is start with a little bit of a discussion. Um, so for those of you who weren't here yesterday, I like getting people to discuss because it means I'm not just talking all the time and you guys have to, I, I have to make sure that you guys are definitely doing some thinking. And unless you're talking about the football, I'm assuming that you're talking about what I'm asking you to talk about. So if you could, in your groups, um, whatever that is, two, three, four, grab, grab people that you, you, would, you would be sitting nearby and just discuss, what do you think? So we did the kind of Ill, illness thing yesterday where we looked at symptoms and then the illness. Obviously, gospel-centered thinking isn't an illness, but there is kind of surface-level stuff that represents gospel-centered thinking. So when you've got an illness, you've got the symptoms and then the actual disease. Let's think through the kind of symptom stage. What, what do you think a, a church that has a bunch of people whose minds are being renewed by the gospel, what kind of things do you think they do and what kind of ways do you think they think? Um, so just think through maybe particular actions and ways of thinking that you think a church that has a gospel-centered mindset would, would think. Does that make sense? Okay, off you go in your groups for a few minutes and then we'll see what you guys have come up with.
Okay. Let's all gather back together again. There's a slightly sickening amount of sugar going on on the front few rows here. Um, so these guys are going to be buzzing. Um, which also, now that I've announced it from the front, means that everyone is aware of the fact that there's sweets over at the front. So, and everyone's now looking and expecting them. So um, whilst uh, some of you might be making your way to try and nab some of the sweets, um, did anyone come up with what, what kind of things do you think, think we would see naturally going on? Kind of surface level things. You've got the iceberg, the 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 underwater part of the iceberg, which is the gospel-centered mindset, what is the visible part of the iceberg? What kind of things do you think a, a, a church with a gospel-centered thinking would be doing? Throw it out. Yes? Sorry? Fruit, fruit of the Spirit. Um, excellent. That is a, a great way of summarizing nine possible outcomes of the uh, <laughs> fruit of the Spirit. Excellent. So if anyone was going to say love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, or self-control, they'll be included in that. Um, <laughs> I did kids' work, so you, you have to learn the list off by heart after a while. You end up pinning them to a tree. Um, great. Fruit of the Spirit. You would definitely see fruit of the Spirit going on in a, in a gospel-centered thinking church. Um, just worth saying now, in case I forget, the idea of being spirit-filled and being gospel-centered and gospel-centered thinking are not kind of two things that we hold separately. So it's not like you've got thinking on one side and then being spirit-filled on the other. Um, Paul particularly, who we're going to look at, sees the spirit and the mind as very, very closely connected. So the way you think is deeply, deeply spiritual. Um, I think we have a, probably as an unhelpful result of the Enlightenment, um, does anyone know um, Rene Descartes? I think therefore I am. Yeah. Very often that mentality can creep into the church. And it's not that human beings are not rational thinking things. It's that what Rene Descartes, said, those of you who don't know him, French philosopher, um, but one of his big statements was, I think, therefore I am. He was trying to figure out, how do I know I exist? Wait, I think, that must mean I exist. And basically said, we know that we exist because we think and the mind and logic. And so human beings kind of became these almost what... James, a guy called James Smith says, mind's on a stick. And the problem is that very often the church combines that way of thinking, of thinking actually the, the real deal is simply what goes on in here. And actually the New Testament sees things much bigger than that. Humans are embodied creatures. They have a body, they have a mind, they have a soul, they're spirit, spiritual, bo embodied, and the whole thing's much more meshed together than we necessarily would give it credit. So it's not like you've got the mind over here and spirit-filled over here, um, as if we have some, some people who do deep thinking and then some people who are always jumping up and down and filled with the spirit. That can be kind of a caricatured way of thinking about it. Actually, people who are filled with the spirit should be people who think really deep, godly thoughts about God. I'm not, I'm not talking about kind of academic level thinking. I'm talking about people who think correct and godly ways of thinking. Um, so really just important to point that out at this stage. Um, any other things that you would suggest gospel-centered thinking churches would look like? Sacrificial generosity. Excellent. Intentionally not speaking whilst writing because there will be so many spelling mistakes if I, <laughs> if I can't multitask to save my life. Yeah? So unity. Excellent. You guys don't need a seminar. 
Might as well just, <laughs> let's just pray and go back home now. Um, yeah, any other things? Worship, excellent. Uh, what do you mean by worship? Excellent, yeah. Because I mean, whatever we, when we use worship, we very often mean kind of praise and singing, which actually there would be in a spiritual church that, or um, a gospel-centered thinking. So let's put worship in the broadest sense. Um, excellent, yeah. You were about to say something? Humility, excellent. Great. Any others? Yes. Forgiveness. I, I should stop going back here in between writing. Forgiveness. Just so we don't go over onto the next page, let's go for like two or three more and I'll try and write small on that side. Yes, you bet. Um, discipleship. Very good. Yep. Freedom. Okay. Freedom from what? Okay, so free freedom from legalism. Yeah, okay, that's true. There would definitely be that. Um, okay, let's go for one final one so at the back. Signs and wonders. Okay. Great. Okay. Those are all, I would think... You just kind of have to pick up, pick up the New Testament and see how the church is supposed to work. And you think, okay, they will all be there. What's interesting um, is, and actually as you, as you read the New Testament, is one thing that hasn't come up, which we might expect would come up in a gospel-centered thinking seminar, is correct theology. Interesting. That, that, that might, that, I don't know if anyone kind of came up with that. Now, correct theology leads to these kind of things. But the interesting thing is when we're going to look at um, kind of, um, First Corinthians in a little bit, what we're going to see is Paul, Paul's primary concern, actually, a lot of the time, when it comes to the way you think, is what kind of, what kind of living does it lead to? I think if he, if he had the choice between someone who spent hours and hours every day thinking about the meaning of Greek words and someone who thought in a correct, gospel-centered way about stuff, and as a result saw these kind of things, he'd probably look at the two of them and think, well, clearly that guy's producing the kind of fruit that we want to see. And so what I want to do is not downplay the theology side, because otherwise I'd be out of a job. Um, what I do want to say, though, is actually gospel-centered thinking is actually something that everyone should be involved in doing, regardless of kind of the academic level of theology they're involved in, because actually the way you think involves the way, influences the way you act. And we need to be churches who are filled of filled with theologians in the best possible sense. Not necessarily people who have masses of books on their shelves and can read a load of stuff, but people who think in a deep way about God and people who can think rightly about the way God is, about the way the gospel is, and who then let that influence their life in these areas. And we're going to see a lot of these areas will appear as we look through um, 1 Corinthians together. So good, good work, guys. Um, what we're going to do is, and you'll see a lot of these appear, is we're going to do a little bit of a thought exercise because after all, it is a, leader, a leadership conference. So I thought we could learn some lessons from one of the greatest Christian leaders, from the Apostle Paul. Um, and so we're going to look at how he deals with the problem of non-gospel-centered thinking in one of his churches. So we've seen Romans 12. Um, I don't want you to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renew of your mind. The church in Corinth 
were the kind of people who were being conformed to the world in the way they were thinking. And Paul writes a very long letter in order to tell them off and to tell them how they should be thinking. Um, and actually, he, he is asking them throughout the whole letter to develop what we will end up calling the mind or the mindset of Christ. It might not always look like he's explicitly saying, this is the way you should think. But you look at the kind of things that he picks up on, and he lays out a foundation in the first few chapters to say that ultimately the way, where you're going wrong, guys, is you've developed a really wrong way of thinking about others, a, way, a wrong way of thinking about the gospel. A wrong, you've developed some seriously wrong thinking, and it's leading to all of these problems that are creeping in to your church at the moment. So we're going to look through how Paul deals with that. Now, Paul's aim is interesting. So Paul states his aim at the beginning of that. I don't think I put this particular verse on the PowerPoint, but 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Okay, it's the Bible, so we kind of read it out and nod and agree. Okay, imagine someone came to your church and said, I want you all to agree and that you would think the same thing. That's going to be difficult in practical terms. To get a bunch of people to all be of the same mind and all agree is going to be pretty tough because everyone has an opinion about something. But yet Paul is writing to this church which is completely disunited, thinking completely the wrong way, and starts not by saying, guys, I think we should kind of, okay, we're going to work slowly back to getting you on track and, uh, and so on. What he starts with is, I appeal to you, think in the same way. And I think it's important for us to highlight this for a couple of reasons. First is, I don't think Paul is saying, I want every single one of you in the church to have exactly the same opinion on everything and everything in life. I think what he's doing is he's thinking, I want you guys to have the same mindset, which means when it comes to gospel-centered stuff, you're all on the same page. And so you might have something that comes up as a church or a particular situation that's going on, it may well be that different people have slightly different pieces of wisdom on it, but you're all of the same mind. You look at sin, and all of you are agreed, sin is wrong, and we do, not want to, we do not want to allow ourselves to buy into a lifestyle of sin. And it may well be that different people have different pieces of wisdom for how to deal with particular pastoral situations, but the whole church is united in saying we are holy and we don't want to end up in sin. And so I think it's important to highlight that. What, what we're not necessarily aiming for is that everyone thinks the same way about their favorite breakfast cereal. We're aiming for, to have everyone saying, actually, my mind has been so changed by the gospel, and I'm looking to Jesus so much, and we're corporately, really important, corporately looking to Jesus so much that actually our mindset, is they're all in line. All of us look at a particular situation, and whilst we might not necessarily do exactly the same detailed things, we all have the same kind of response because we've developed the mindset of Christ. And that's what Paul wants for his people. But the problem is the Corinthians are not united in mind. And we're going to see a few areas, and we're going to basically look at um, a few quotes from Corinth that were going on um, and try and figure out how did Paul deal with those, and what does that teach us about what a mind that is gospel-centered looks like. But before we do that, Paul, in the first four chapters, explains the basis of Christian thinking. So we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at a passage. If you've got your Bibles, you can open up in... 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to look at a little passage from uh, chapter 2, verse 1, all the way into chapter 3, verse 4, where Paul, amongst other things, explains the foundation of how we think as Christians. And he's explaining this to the Corinthians because it, it's happened to them, they're just not appropriating it for themselves. And he wants them to realize this is what's been given to you as a result of being in Christ, 
And then off the back of that, he writes the rest of a very long letter where he picks up on loads of really thorny... Sometimes you look at some of the stuff going on in Corinth and you think, how did they get there? And the reason they got there is that they hadn't been thinking through stuff in a gospel-centered way. And we want to try and avoid that particular trap, and we want to look at how Paul deals with that. Because we want to make sure we're developing the mindset of Christ in our own lives, but also that we're people who are able to help and teach others to develop the mindset of Christ. So let's read through this bit, uh, bit by bit. So if we could have the next, um, next slide up, that would be great. There we go. So Paul talks about when he first came to Corinth to preach the gospel to these guys who had never heard the gospel. So there might, might have been a few Jews in Corinth who would know the Old Testament, but mostly pagans. And he says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So in this paragraph, Paul's kind of just setting it. Here was, here's what I did when I came to you guys. Most of you were pagans from a Greek background, and, and actually there was... There were probably quite a few people in the Corinthian, a few people at least, in the Corinthian church who would have been of some kind of status before they became Christians. Not many of them, it seems, but there would have been a few. And they may well have been quite versed in philosophy, or they might have been quite versed in rhetoric. The Greeks loved rhetoric. You ever, you ever listen to someone speaking, and you go away, and you sit down, and you think, when I analyze what they said, I don't think I actually agree with them, but I found myself agreeing with them as they were saying it because they were so good at making a rhetorical case. Paul's saying, when I came to Corinth, I didn't do that. You guys loved that. You guys love that. You love listening to philosophers who actually, when you pick it apart, it doesn't make any sense, but they, uh, they speak so beautifully and eloquently. He said, I didn't do that. I proclaimed the alternative narrative, which was that the Jewish Messiah has been crucified and raised from the dead. I decided to know nothing apart from Christ and him crucified. So that, Actually, at the end of the day, your faith doesn't rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So Paul sets up this kind of contrast. There's the power of God here, which we're going to find out is wisdom, but it is not the wisdom of men. And you've got the wisdom of men over here. The Corinthians at this stage are looking at the wisdom of men. And they're saying, we, we think the gospel should be more like that. And Paul's saying, no, the gospel ultimately will not fit in with the wisdom of human beings because there are fundamental points of disagreement which just won't fit because the wisdom of man is built on man's ability to get himself out of his problems the wisdom of god is built on a crucified messiah which as we saw yesterday was absolute folly to everyone who would have heard it in the ancient world we don't i mean we associate the cross with jesus nowadays in the ancient world when you said the cross you didn't think jesus you thought you thought humiliation you thought shame you thought pain to talk about a leader being someone who was crucified and to say that that particular person was God's wisdom would have been laughed out of the house. It would just be, I mean, literally, it, it would be like saying we follow a jelly baby. It's just, it, try, and it's, there we go. Think of the most ludicrous statement you, th you can think of. We follow a crucified Messiah would be kind of analogous to that, basically. But Paul's saying that was the narrative I proclaimed. I didn't, I didn't fit in with the nice rhetoric. Paul can do rhetoric. You read 1 Corinthians, he knows how to do it. But he said, actually, that's not what I'm basing the gospel on. I proclaim Jesus and him crucified. Verse 6, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret 
and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Classic kind of Paul doesn't finish his sentence at that point. Um, What Paul's saying here, though, is I came and proclaimed what the world sees as folly. But among the mature, the word there means kind of the perfect or the mature, which is a kind of can be a standard, standard word used for Christians, basically. Among those whose minds actually are focused on the gospel, we do speak wisdom. Oh, what does that mean? Does that mean that Paul initially proclaimed the folly of the cross, and then once they kind of got used to that idea, he then proclaimed some proper wisdom? No, Paul's saying it's a matter of perspective. I came proclaiming folly in the world's eyes. But actually, now that your minds by the Holy Spirit have been renewed, you look at that, and actually, if you, were to, if you guys were developing the mind of Christ, you would look at what I preached, and you would see that as God's wisdom. It's a little bit like, um, if you take this bottle, imagine you cannot see in 3D. Imagine all you can see is 2D. Just imagine it's more of a kind of, I don't know, deodorant can kind of shape. If I hold that up, what shape would you see? I think you can't see in 3D. You can't see 3D. You can just see two dimensions. If I hold it that way up, you would... You'd see a rectangle, so just imagine it's a little bit straighter than it is, okay? If I was to, so if I were to hold it to these people there, you'd see it as a rectangle. You guys would see this as a circle. Different perspectives. Paul's saying it's the same thing, it's just that these guys have a completely different perspective on it. You guys are seeing a rectangle, but these guys are seeing a circle. Because these guys are seeing from, I'm not going to say it's the right perspective in this case, but actually in, in Corinth, the right perspective is to look at the cross and say, actually, that is God's wisdom. It's folly to those who are perishing, but it's actually God's wisdom. And so what Paul's saying here is, we preach Christ crucified, we preach the message of the gospel to those who are being saved, that actually becomes wisdom. And actually, by listening to that wisdom and basing your life on that wisdom, you become more and more mature. We don't move on from Christ crucified. We don't move on from the message of the gospel. We come more and more to appreciate it as God's wisdom. These things, verse 10, God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person except the Spirit of that person, who, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this wisdom not um, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to spiritual people. Okay, slightly dense passage at this point, but what Paul's saying is, if as a person, only you can understand your deepest thoughts. It's not like I can look at, like, so if I'm looking at Adam on the front row here, um, he's looking at his Bible, I could think, he's, he, he may well be thinking very deeply about what I'm saying. Or he might be thinking, that was a really nice pulled pork sandwich I had for lunch. I don't ultimately know. I don't have his spirit in that sense. I don't have that inside knowledge into his mind. No one can know ultimately what's going on in your mind apart from yourself. And then Paul says, no one knows ultimately, no one really knows what's going on in God's mind apart from the spirit of God. He said, but you guys, you didn't receive the spirit of this world. You received the spirit of God. Think about that is phenomenal. Now, Paul is not saying that we understand all the ins and outs and intricacies of the way that God thinks. But what he's saying is when you receive the Spirit of God, you suddenly gain insight into the way that God thinks about situations. 
You receive the Spirit of God, which is why I said earlier, spirit and mind go very closely together. Uh, by virtue of receiving the Spirit, you suddenly get insight into the way God... It's almost like I suddenly receive Adam's Spirit, and I suddenly think, oh, he is thinking about deeply about what I'm talking about. He's not thinking about the broad pork sandwich. It's that kind of analogy that's going on. And like I said, it doesn't mean you understand everything about God. That would be, probably, that would be heresy. But it means you, un- you get a sense of, here is how God looks at this situation. And when we're talking about this message, which is the message of the cross, you go from seeing it as utter folly to suddenly seeing it from the other perspective because you've received the spirit of God that helps you. And so Paul elaborates on that. He says the natural person, so this means the, the person who works on a purely human level does not understand or accept the things of the spirit of God because they're folly to him. They look at the word of the cross and they think that's complete nonsense. Who would ever believe that? He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, they are discerned. You understand them by having the Holy Spirit. You ever had a conversation with a non-Christian about something that you think, this is just so blindingly obvious, and there's been a brick wall? The reason is, they can't discern the things you're talking about because they are discerned through the power of the Spirit. You understand them, and you think, this is just normal. This is just completely natural. They look at them and think, that's complete folly. Because they are discerned by the Spirit. The spiritual person, however, judges or discerns all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. I think discern might be a more helpful word than judge. It's the same, the same Greek word. Or ev- maybe even better is to think through the image of sifting through. A spiritual person, when you see the word spiritual, by the way, until it gets ingrained into your mind, replace it every time with someone who is animated by the Spirit of God. So we say the word spiritual in our culture and we think of someone sitting on top of a pole and going, hmm, for a long period of time. Spiritual means someone who is animated by the Spirit of God. Someone who is animated by the Spirit of God sifts or discerns or judges all things. So they will see particular situations or thoughts coming their way, and they will sift it. They'll look at it and think, that is gospel-centered. That's not gospel-centered. That's, gospel- that's not gospel-centered. I'm not letting that in. It's kind of having a, you have a, a sieve-like mentality, which you develop, of course. But actually, there's that ability to discern things which non-spiritual people, people who aren't animated by the Spirit, don't have. And then Paul says, so who, can un- who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind or the, the mindset of Christ. By virtue of not being natural but spirit-animated, we actually possess the mindset, the way of thinking of Christ. Now, this is something that needs to be grown, like I said, with the seed earlier. You get given this seed, the mind of Christ, but you have a responsibility, as it says in Romans 12, to develop that and to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But, and this is incredible, by virtue of coming into union with Christ and receiving the Spirit, you get given the mind of Christ. You get given the way of thinking of Jesus, which is absolutely phenomenal when you think about it. You think, actually, every single person in this room who has been born again, has been given the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ does not mean that we suddenly get a kind of a download of the mysteries of the universe. It means that we think in a Christ-centered way. Think about what the, the minds, the word mindset might be more helpful because mind, we just think kind of almost the organ of thought. The word here for mind actually is more the idea of mindset. Almost like what's your default? What's your compass? If you think about what was Jesus' mindset like when he was walking around in Galilee and preaching the good news, when he was healing the sick, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. Paul says, by virtue of being born again, 
by becoming a spirit-animated person, you receive the mindset, the way of thinking of Christ, which is phenomenal. And we're going to look at um, how Paul teaches, br- briefly how Paul teaches that to people. But here's the warning. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, but not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still in the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only a hu- in a human way? For when one says, I follow a Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? So Paul, there's all this amazing stuff about you've received the mind of Christ, and then immediately says, but actually, guys, I wasn't able to speak to you as we would speak to mature people. Again, not because my message wasn't to mature people. It, it wasn't destined for mature people, but because your perspective is still fleshly. Although you've received the mind of Christ, you're still going about being conformed to this world and you're not being transformed by the renewal of your mind. Being given the mindset of Christ does not mean that you automatically start thinking about everything in a gospel-centered way. It means you now have the capacity to do that. A little bit like, I've used this illustration a few times for different things on lead, so you've probably all heard it before, but Usain Bolt is built to run. You might have figured that out if you've watched him on TV. If I was to ask Adam on the front row, can you run 100 meters in under 10 seconds, he would crumble. He, would, he, like, he wouldn't even try. He knows that he can't do it, which in part is because he hasn't been training for years, but in part, I don't know if Adam is built to be that kind of sprinter. Usain Bolt is built to be that kind of sprinter. However, if you ask Usain Bolt, do you, so you don't train then, he'd look at you and say, well, of course I do. In fact, apparently recently, he's given up his diet of chicken wings in order to be able to do even better. Um, He trains really hard. But but he is a sprinter. You look at him and you think, you've got the muscular structure, you've got the body which is able to run quickly, but he still puts the training in. That's what being a Christian is like. You You become a saint, and you then have the responsibility to train and work that out. It's like that with the mind of Christ. You get given the mindset of Christ, And you now have that responsibility to develop that and mature that. And so there's a bit of a warning for us there, which is that actually a church, and I think in the case of a lot of areas of of the church, probably church in every country, it's just that obviously we mainly come from the Western world. I think there are lots of areas which we might be able to look at and think, I wonder if this is an area where we're actually being conformed to the world rather than being transformed by the renewal of our mind. Might have a bit of a think about that later. Does that make sense? Everyone following? Good stuff. Just maybe have a quick one minute, chat with your neighbor, think, what, is there something that you've, that's come up so far that you think, that was interesting, or I hadn't seen that thing that way before, um, and just have a bit of a discussion, and we might just do two or three minutes um, of a bit of Q&A in order to break things up a little bit. But yeah, just a bit of a, a turn, turn to your neighbor, what, what fascinated you there, what did you think, what had you not seen before, and just discuss that through a bit.
Okay, great. We'll have a bit of an opportunity later on to kind of discuss things a bit more practically together, but um, that's just to kind of get you guys processing what we've just been doing. At this stage, are there anything, is there anything that I've covered that you just think, I'd just like a bit of clarification on this, or could you just re-explain that? Is any, anyone in a position where they want a bit of clarification on anything? No? Good, which either means, come on, just get on with it, or you have genuinely understood everything. I'll assume the second one. Okay, what we're going to do now, and I'm going to try and keep this brief, because I think um, I want us to make sure we've got some time to do a bit of practical thinking towards the end, is bearing in mind that the Corinthian church are in this particular situation. They are disunited. They are not thinking in a gospel-centered way. How does Paul go about correcting that problem? And I'm just going to, what we're going to do is going to, we, we're going to look at problems at Corinth in quotes, basically. So here, the, the first one's just come up on the board. In the first few chapters, Paul, Paul says, I've heard that some of you are saying, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, which is Peter, and others are saying, I follow, I follow Christ. Basically, there is disunity in the church. And what's going on is different parts of the Corinthian church are following different, different leaders in the way that you would follow a football team. Like, I follow Manchester United, no, I follow Norwich, and, I, or, and they're, going, they're going and supporting their different leaders. And Paul's response is in, basically, the first four chapters of Corinthians, Paul's trying to correct in part this, is he, he explains to them, he says, here's how I want you to see us. Okay, here's what gospel-centered thinking looks like. We're servants. We are mere servants of God on your behalf. I planted, Apollos watered, God's the one who gives the growth. Guys, you guys don't realize that actually we as leaders are going to be held to account on the final day for the way we've built. Our work is going to go through the fire. If Apollos' work is burnt up, he's going to suffer loss. We're all human beings. He says, this is the way that you should see us. Because a gospel-centered mind, Paul wants his converts to understand, is impressed with God, not with people. So in real terms, we're going to think through it. In, in real terms, a mind that is conformed to the world will be impressed with human beings, with celebrities, with leaders, with speakers, with particularly prominent people. That's the thing that impresses them. They're like, that, that, that guy, he's, he's, a, he's the big guy. But actually, a mind that's centered on the gospel will benefit and encourage those kind of people, but actually they will be impressed ultimately with God. They will be impressed with God, not the messenger. And I doubt Paul would have ever turned away any, any encouragement from his converts. Oh, that, was a, that was really helpful teaching. Thank you, Paul. But when his converts are coming to him saying, we're following you, Paul. Those guys over there, they're following Apollos. Aren't they terrible? He'd say, ah, you've misunderstood it. We're merely servants. God's the one you guys want to be impressed with. So a gospel-centered mind is impressed with God, not the messenger. So that's first quote. Second quote from Corinth. Already you have begun to reign, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. What's happened is... The Corinthians seem to think that now they've become Christians, or at least a group of them think, now they've become Christians, they have basically attained to absolute perfection. And they're the great, they're the, they're the big guys, they're proud of their achievements, and they think actually they've probably graduated beyond what Paul had set for them. And so Paul kind of quite sarcastically says, oh, already you've begun to reign. And, oh, I wish that we apostles reigned with you, but at the moment we apostles are kind of being dragged around like the scum of the earth. But you guys are wise, we're fools for Christ. You guys are rich, but we're poor. And he is being very kind of virulent and sarcastic because he needs to be. But what Paul's saying is, guys, what do you have, he says this in chapter 4, that you didn't receive? What do you have that you didn't receive? Who sees you any differently? 
puffed up thinking is met with a gospel-centered statement, basically. The Corinthians think, oh, we, we know loads of stuff. We reign already. We're kings. So kind of you theologians out there, over-realized eschatology is what we're talking about. We think we've attained the end goal already, which interestingly is what probably a lot of um, modernist humans think particularly the kind of the new atheist groups, like we are getting to the point where we're ousting out religion and the, we're all going to be better. And actually, Paul meets that with, well, what do you have that you didn't receive? You guys, w- I've just been on in chapter two and three to you about the fact that when you receive the spirit, you understand the gifts that have been given to you by God. Not the, not the reward, the gifts. What do you have that you didn't receive? And uh, there's a, a great example. So, well, let's, let's take Romans 12 for an example. Be transformed in the renewal, by the renewal of your mind, that you may discern what is the will of God. The verse that comes immediately after is not, and here are the books that you need to buy to equip yourself to understand the Greek and the Hebrew. I'm sure, I mean, Paul understood Greek and Hebrew, he didn't need books, but I'm sure he wouldn't have discouraged that. But his first statement is, each one of you should think of himself sober-mindedly and not in a puffed-up way. Interesting, the first thing he talks about after this amazing climax of be transformed by the renewal of a mind is think about yourself with humility. So in real terms, a mind that is conformed to this world will boast in gifting and abilities, which although, I mean, we're, a, we're kind of a, a, a bizarre kind of false humility culture in the UK, aren't we? Like there's, there's pride going on which is disguised as humility, that's the way a mind conforms to the world works, whereas a, a mind centered on the gospel actually will be thankful for the gifts that God has given them. And because the, that, that mindset realizes that their gifts will use them in a humble way. Philippians 2 is an amazing example of this. Paul is, Paul's writing to a church in Philippi, and probably, to be honest, probably the, one of the churches in the best nick that he planted, pretty much. But there's, there seems to be a couple of leaders in the church who are disagreeing, and he talks to them explicitly towards the end, but... He, he says in chapter 2, he says, I want all of you to have the same mind and the same mindset. And he says, have this mindset amongst yourselves, the one that was also in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And Paul writes this Im- amazing poem that has inspired so many songs and books in order to solve a, an argument between two leaders. He says, think in the way Christ lived. Christ did not consider his status a thing to be usurped, but instead humbled himself. And so a gospel-centered mind uses gifts in a humble way rather than being doing that in a puffed-up way. All following so far? Okay, quote number three. All things are permissible. You might have that as all things are lawful, which very often makes it sound like we're just talking about the Jewish law, but literally it's all things are permissible. And this, is, it seems like, would be a catchphrase that a lot of the Corinthians were going around saying. Um, they were going around saying, oh, we're in Christ. All things are permissible. We can do anything we want. Paul's response to that, in part, is to say, yes, but not all things are helpful. And yes, I won't be built up. Uh, I, I will not be enslaved by anything. But what he also does, does is he talks about the fact that we were bought at a price and we are not our own and our body is God's temple. So there is a situation going on in Corinth where there is someone who is sleeping with his stepmom. And the Corinthians are proud about it. And they're kind of probably going around going, all things are permissible. And Paul says, you should be weeping at that. He says, don't you understand that your bodies are God's temple? Shall I take a, shall I take a member of, God, of, of Christ's body and make it a member of a prostitute? 
what Paul does is he, he doesn't just slap them on the wrist. He says, look at what has happened to you as a result of the gospel. Think straight. You are part of Christ's temple. You are part of Christ's body. What you're doing makes no sense. And so this whole statement, all things are permissible, Paul kind of just chops it down by saying, not when you think in a gospel-centered way. And even if you are talking about particular things which technically are permissible, not all things are helpful. And so a gospel-centered mind understands and esteems holiness. Because what a gospel-centered mind does, it, it looks at the church and says, I know that the church is Christ's body. And it would be sacrilege to take part of Christ's body and make that part of Christ's body one flesh with a prostitute. It would be absolutely abhorrent. It, would be impo- it's just, it just makes no sense. I realize that we as a church and individually are the temple of God. Which means that it's not just that holiness is this thing that we do in order to gain favor with God. It actually should naturally flow out of who we are. And that's the way kind of gospel-centered thinking looks at it through the lens of the gospel and says, as a result of the gospel, we know that we are Christ's body. Therefore, the way we live should be in line with that. Next quote. We all have knowledge, the Corinthians said. That's another one of the catchphrases that people have identified. They're going around saying, we all have knowledge. Now, what they're talking about at this point is knowledge about food sacrificed to idols. Now, we generally don't go down to Sainsbury's and buy food that has just been sacrificed to a pagan idol. And I'm not sure that halal is necessarily analogous with what's going on in Corinth here, just for, um, for, for that, that side of things. But what's going on is you've got a bunch of people in Corinth who say, well, we know that ultimately idols are not real. They're not real. So we're very happy to go, go and eat in a temple of a pagan god, um, and that's absolutely fine, because we know that it's not, they're not real, so it's not going to do us any damage. Paul responds in two ways. In chapter 10, he does actually convince them that going to take part in a pagan meal is actually idolatrous, and therefore you shouldn't do it. It's, it is idolatrous. Do not partake in pagan worship meals. But in chapter 8, he says, yes, you, we all do have knowledge. We do know that there is these idols are no real. They're not, they're not real. They're just images. But not all people have this knowledge. And there are some people in your church, Corinthians, who because formerly they've associated with idols, when they see you going and eating idol meat, or they see you going and eating the um, temple to an idol, even though you're really not supposed to do that anyway, they will look at you and they won't see it from the, from the point of view of, oh, we know that this isn't true anyway. They will look at it, and as a result of what you're doing, they're going to end up stumbling. And so disregarding the fact that eating in pagan temples is, not, is an idolatrous thing to do, you are sinning also by causing your brother to stumble. And so in real terms, a mind that is conformed to this world doesn't know how to... Well, in this, in this case, it wasn't really a non-gospel issue because idolatrous pagan meals are just idolatrous. Let's think about it maybe more in in Romans 14 to 15, where we're talking about meat and vegetables, where it's Jews versus Gentiles, and the Jews are not too happy to eat the meat because their conscience doesn't allow them. And Paul says, you know what, we're not going to pass judgment on each other over issues of food. You need to know how to give up non-gospel issues for the sake of gospel issues. Unity is a gospel issue. Whether or not you eat meat is not a gospel issue. And a mind that is gospel-centered knows how to not just say, but we know it's not true, and knows how to love those who don't actually have the same knowledge as you. It's very different, because you think, mine, surely, the knowledge thing is good. And yes, you would, like, over time, you might hope that actually some people's consciences would change. But actually, Paul is far more concerned with unity, 
church is, is a gospel-centered issue than he is with everyone being absolutely convinced that it's okay to eat meat. And so a gospel-centered mind knows to read situations in terms of what will build others up the most. That's the key thing. Paul says, we all have knowledge. Paul says, this knowledge puffs up. You guys are going around saying, we all know this stuff. He says, that puffs up. That makes you inflated. But love builds up. I want you to love rather than to go around saying, I know this stuff. And uh, just to mention, because it can sound a bit like we're just saying, whatever doesn't offend. Paul's not saying, whatever doesn't offend. He's saying, whatever builds up and doesn't cause people to fall into sin. If you're doing something because of your knowledge that is causing someone else to fall into sin, you are sinning by virtue of that. You're knowingly doing that. And Paul's saying, I want you guys to actually prioritize love for others, which we say love in our culture, and we think that means, oh, just let them do whatever they want. No, for Paul, love is what is going to not cause them to stumble as a result of your actions. That should be your default, which is an interesting way of thinking about thinking, actually. Okay, three more quotes to go. We're following. Yes, okay. This isn't the Lord's Supper is kind of a, a quote that I've half made up, half quoted from um, 1 Corinthians 11. It says, when you gather together, you're not taking the Lord's Supper. So basically what's going on in Corinth, it seems, is rich people, um, so kind of homeowners who would own slaves probably, are turning up. Um, generally, worship would have probably been around a meal and they'd have taken communion together. Um, and they all gather together and the rich people arrive first and they end up scoffing down, scoffing all of the food, drinking all of the wine. And by the time the slaves who finish later arrive, there's none left for them. And so Paul's saying, this, this isn't the Lord's Supper that you're taking. What you are taking is not communion. If you're coming along and stuffing your face whilst other people are going like, uh, and not having anything, that is not the Lord's Supper that you're taking. Because a gospel-centered mind puts unity and togetherness above personal needs. So a gospel-centered mind, so, uh, Paul gives very practical advice. He says, you guys have got houses you can eat in. If you're hungry, just eat there before coming. He says, but do not take the Lord's Supper, which is one of the, the sacraments that demonstrates the unity of the body and one of the sacraments that reminds us of the death and resurrection of Christ. Do not take that and abuse it. Do not do that because what it proclaims is we are not united in Christ. And that's not just saying we're, it's not nice because we're disunited. It's actually proclaiming a false gospel. If you have a bunch of people who turn up early because of their status and eat the Lord's Supper, what you are proclaiming is the gospel is for the rich. I want you guys to all come together and actually to share the Lord's Supper and to share from one cup and be one single body. So in real terms, a mind conformed to this world will see spiritual growth, is, this is interesting, as a personal, primarily as a personal self-centered thing. It's about me and my spiritual growth. Whereas a gospel-centered mind will see spiritual growth as, yes, it is individual, but it is also profoundly corporate. And actually, I think the bias in the West, and I think very often this creeps into the church, is our bias is to think Christianity is primarily about my relationship to Jesus. There, that is part of the deal, that Christianity is also about God's creating a people for himself. And if we do stuff, actually, which puts our own preferences and almost feels like you're treading on eggshells, but our own spirituality in a kind of very selfish way above the corporate spirituality of the church, we're kind of, we're proclaiming a false gospel. We're saying that Jesus came to die just for me rather than Jesus came to die for his bride. And Paul actually, I mean, Paul is very angry about this. I think if, maybe, I think maybe we need to rethink how significant the Lord's Supper actually is. 
Because I think we might read this and think, Paul's saying that some people have died and become sick as a result of what they're doing. That sounds a bit harsh. I think what's going on is Paul has a very gospel-centered mind. He says, this meal demonstrates the unity of the church. If you're abusing this meal, you are proclaiming a false gospel. That's why he's so angry with that. Okay, penultimate quote, I will show you an even greater way. Now, this is Paul at this point saying something nicer. 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, it's about spiritual gifts, the body of Christ, and how to use spiritual gifts. So the Corinthians loved praying out in tongues. They loved praying out in languages. No one understands what's going on, though. And Paul says, I'd rather you guys actually prophesy than speak in tongues in your public meeting all the time because... Not because speaking in languages isn't wrong. I thank God that I speak in, in languages more than all of you. But I would rather speak a, a few words with my mind than a thousand words in the Spirit in the gathered congregation. And so a gospel-centered mind puts building up others through gifts before, before other things. And a gospel-centered mind also realizes that it's part of the body. The Corinthians... In a sense, a lot of the Corinthians had the classic Western mindset. It's all about me and my spirituality. And they came along and they'd pray in languages and no one would understand what's going on. And it would just be, it would kind of be a little bit chaos. And everyone would be like, what the heck is going on? And Paul's saying, praying in languages is fine. Do not prevent it, but aim to build up when you're gathered together. You guys are part of the body. Uh, you can't just, like, just because you're the foot, you can't go, uh, go off and do your own thing. You're part of a body. And right in the middle of that, this amazing chapter that very often gets read out at weddings, which is appropriate because it is an incredible chapter on love, but we mustn't forget the original context was spiritual gifts. Paul says, I want you guys to eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. He says, and I'm going to show you an even greater way. And I don't think he's saying that prophecy isn't a greater way. He's saying, actually, prophecy is better than languages in a corporate setting. But if you do that without love, you're like a clashing symbol. If Mike Bollinger were to get up here later today and prophesy and do it out of a lack of love, he would be like, it would just be like someone's clashing the cymbals on the drums. Actually, love builds up. And when you use your gifts out of love, you are thinking in a gospel-centered way. And so in real terms, a mind conformed to this world seeks status through gifts. That's what the Corinthians were, pro- were, were doing. Interestingly, we, might not, we wouldn't think that in our culture, but it seems like in those days, Speaking in kind of ecstatic languages would have been seen as a sign of status. Interesting. That in our culture is probably seen as a sign of lunacy. But in that culture, very often, would it apparently in pagan worship was seen as a bit of a status thing. So a mind conformed to this world seeks status through gifts, whereas a gospel-centered mind uses gifts in love, bearing with each other, and doing all things to build up. And then finally, how are the dead raised then? So 1 Corinthians 15 The Corinthians believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but a whole bunch of them seem to not believe that we will be raised from the dead one day. And Paul traces this down to the fact that ultimately they they just haven't got it. And so he reminds them of the gospel. Interesting. If someone comes up to you and says, I don't think I'm going to be raised from the dead one day, you may well just kind of turn to systematic theology and talk about how, like, actually, no, it says it in the Bible, which is not a wrong thing to do because the whole Bible's gospel. Paul says, I'm going to remind you of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. And he was raised on the third day. And if Christ has been proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that the dead, aren't, dead won't be raised? If the dead aren't raised, then even Christ hasn't been raised. And then halfway through the chapter, he says, so some of you will say, well, how are the dead raised then? What kind of body will they come with? You fool. 
which sounds harsh. You think, well, that sounds like a genuine question. Paul's not quoting a genuine question. He's quoting a cynical question, which says, we as Greeks know that bodies just perish in the ground. How, what kind of body are they going to come out? Are they just going to cut like this rotting corpse is going to come out of the ground? And Paul says, you fool. Don't you realize that the seed that you sow is not the same thing? It does not look the same as the thing that grows up. What Paul's getting at here is a mind conformed to this world will question God's ability to do things. It will look at something like death and say, how can you proclaim a resurrection? That makes no sense. And a gospel-centered mind trusts God and takes him at his word instead, which I think is what Paul's getting at. So those are kind of quotes in Corinth of what's going on. So in summary, we have the mind of Christ, which means we now have, you, all, all of us here who are in Christ, have the spiritual capacity to think in a right gospel-centered way. But as we see with Corinth, that can very often go the wrong way. And what Paul does, he wants to say, look at the gospel. Look at what Jesus has done and now think in a correct way, which leads to all of these different things. And this is for everyone. So what would be great is we'll, we'll take maybe just two or three minutes for you in groups. But let's think in practical terms now, bearing in mind that all of this stuff comes out of a result of gospel-centered thinking and the way Paul has encouraged his converts in Corinth who were thinking in a, my, a, a worldly way, how he's encouraging them to think. What kind of practical things do you think we can do to develop the mindset of Christ? To get to the point where actually the glasses we're wearing that we look at the world through fit in with this kind of stuff rather than the kind of quotes that we're getting from the church in Corinth. Make sense? So just a bit of discussion. It, might, it may well be kind of lessons that you've learned over your life, things that you do to make sure that your mind is being renewed. And then we'll come back and we'll just, I'll just give a few suggestions of things that I think biblically can be helpful for developing the mind of Christ. So off you guys go.
Okay. Everyone had help, helpful discussions? Yes? Yeah, good. Okay, we're not going to feedback just time-wise, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go through a few kind of principles that I think are biblical and helpful in terms of developing. Remember, we're, we're developing a mindset which is different to just sitting down and thinking very hard about stuff. There is a real place for sitting down and thinking about stuff. And I think if you want to learn more about that, buy a, or you don't need to buy it. It's free online. There's a book by John Piper called Think. I think the subtitle is something like The Life of the Mind and, or something. It's classic John Piper. It's like thinking is about delighting in the glory of God ultimately. And it's, it's all very kind of big picture stuff. So um, grab hold of that book. I think that's a really, really helpful book. But we're looking at developing a mindset, which means that we look at the world a different way, which then means the way that we act just, in a sense, kind of becomes a habit after a while. You start thinking about things in a very different way because you, over a life, over years and years, you've habituated yourself to thinking and doing stuff in a particular way. So just a few kind of highlights that I might pick up on. Um, first one would be make sure you know the narrative. What I mean by that is make sure you, it's, you know it's not just about knowing doctrines and facts. It's about habituating or getting used to living within a new narrative. We need to understand what is the big picture that we're part of, what's the big picture of the gospel, because until we understand that, our lives could end up becoming very insular. So an illustration that I use sometimes is, if you take the Lord of the Rings, and if some of you haven't seen it here, you are unfortunately in the very small minority, so I'm just going to assume that everyone knows. Um, the Lord, I said seen, didn't I? That kind of gives away my age a bit. If you haven't read it. Um, so the big picture story of Lord of the Rings is... Um, by destroying the ring of power, Middle-earth will be brought to peace again. That's kind of overarching story. The characters in that story need to know that that is hopefully where the narrative is heading, or they will end up living their own personal stories in a very disconnected way. So if you imagine if Frodo, who is the little hobbit who has to take the ring into Mount Doom to destroy it, if he doesn't understand the overall narrative, he might end up saying, well, you know what, I actually, I fancy just opening a chain of Costa Coffee's in the Shire. I don't like this idea of going all the way to Mordor. Well, that's a nice personal narrative. The problem is there will be no Shire left if the ring doesn't get destroyed. And so his own narrative, his own judgment, his own life that he lives needs to be lived in light of the larger narrative. And so I'd say it's really important to make sure that we are constantly, and I'd say at this point, I think a lot of these things we, at least initially, have to do these as conscious actions. We say, I'm going to consciously make sure I am reading more about the narrative. So I'm reading the, the Bible as a, kind of taking chunks of it in one go rather than just necessarily just focusing on one or two things. Thinking, are there, are there parts of the Bible that actually just summarize the whole sweep of it to help me understand what's going on? Because the more you understand the big picture, the more that you will end up understanding how your own personal life fits within that. I think conferences like this are great for this because we get people from other nations coming along. And so if you are, is anyone here who's not from the UK in this room? Okay, we have one, one or two people. Thank you for coming because you guys are reminding us that the gospel is not about the UK. The gospel is about the nations coming to know God. And obviously, if we were doing a conference in Holland, the fact that we'd come over would hopefully remind you of that. 
So I think we have to make sure that we know the narrative, that we know the big picture story. This is not just about me and Jesus in my little bubble. This is about God redeeming the nations and redeeming his creation. Um, just a, a comment, if there are any songwriters here, just a, a thought I had a few days ago was, why, why is it that so many old hymns are so powerful? And I think one of the things I put my finger on is they tell a narrative. If you think about it, old hymns very often don't have, repet- don't have choruses that you keep coming back to. Or they sometimes do, but the verses build a narrative. And I think just a, a thing to remember is when you're writing songs, make sure you write songs that take us somewhere in terms of a narrative. It's not to say that there's anything wrong with repetitive choruses. The angels love singing holy, holy, holy for eternity, pretty much. But I think, there's some, I think one of the things that makes ancient hymns, that, like ancient hymns, all the hymns, a lot of the time very effective is they're telling a story the way through. And you can follow a thread. So I think just I'd encourage those of you who are song, songwriters, think through how can I write songs that tell a story as well as just songs that proclaim abstract truths. Um, we need both, but I think we definitely need more and more songs that are proclaiming the big narrative. Um, I'd say another thing, realize that the mind, the way you think, whether that is conscious thinking or stuff that just goes on in the back of your mind, is one of the main places where spiritual warfare is forged. If you're aware of the schemes of the enemy, it makes fighting it a lot easier. So if you, like Jesus says, I mean, completely different situation, completely different application, but if, if, if someone, if, if you've got a king and he has an army and he doesn't know, and he hasn't counted how many soldiers he has, doesn't know how, and the other army's bigger, he's, he's, he's going to end up like offering terms, terms of peace because like we can't beat him. Kind of turn the analogy on its head a little bit. If that king has no idea how big the army is, he doesn't know what he's up against. If we realize that actually the mind, the way we think, is actually potentially the main place where our spiritual warfare is going to go on, it's not, it seems, probably not primarily about casting out demons. It's probably mostly about the way we think and the mindset that we have. And just realizing that very often can mean that we're not deceived, we're not taken off guard. We're not suddenly thinking, I just keep thinking this. I didn't realize it would be this tough. And actually, that is, the mind is going to be one of the main places where um, the battle goes on. Um, okay, another one, I think this is really, really important, particularly because of, again, Descartes, um, I think, therefore I am. Great, nice statement, but has ended up wreaking havoc in a lot of areas as a result. Build and develop habits that will help you think in a godly way. The way we act, the actions that we do, influence the way that we think. So like uh, the illustration I used yesterday with Mide, who was kind of starting getting into jogging, initially hated it, and after a few weeks, the fact that he daily went out meant that initially he was like, oh, this isn't that bad, and after a while started enjoying it. Habits that we build into our lives change the way that we think. So Tim, Tim Keller quote, or Tim Keller quoting someone else, the Nazis killed the Jews first because they hated them, then they hated the Jews because they killed them. What you do has huge implications over the way you think. The habits that you form change the way that you think. So a guy called James Smith has a brilliant quote which says, there is no formation without repetition. So habits are things which naturally are just things that you repeat on a regular basis. And he makes makes a really good observation. I recommend buy all of his books. They're brilliant. Um, And I'm I'm sure there's some stuff in there that's not quite there, but it's... He, he's a very, very good thinker. 
Um, it's ironic, the, the stuff that he comes up with is very often about the fact that we've become too cerebral. But he's an excellent, th excellent thinker. He says, there is no formation without repetition. He says, if you learn the piano and you're serious about it and you have the end goal of wanting to become a great pianist, you will spend hours practicing your scales. Going up and down, C major, then C minor, and then going up and then D major, and then D minor. You practice over and over again. He says, why is it that we don't, why is it that when it comes to Christianity, we see that as legalism, whereas when it comes to playing a musical instrument, we see that as just normal? And I think the reason is we probably partly misunderstand what legalism is. I think partly we've bought into this myth that actually the way we change is just by sitting down and thinking very hard. And he makes a really good case for saying, actually, the way that human beings primarily develop the way that they think about stuff is by habits. And um, he's got a really kind of provocative title for a lecture called Redeeming Ritual. You can go onto YouTube, and it's a really, really helpful. And he's really, really helpful at highlighting um, something that actually the Ang Anglicans do really well, and I think we can really learn from them, is the idea of liturgy. Don't be scared of liturgy. Sounds like the kind of, oh, my goodness, that sounds institutional. What liturgy does is every week you have a particular pattern where you say particular prayers, you'll recite particular creeds, which on one level might sound legalistic to us. Again, I think that's probably because we've got a, sometimes a skewed view of what legalism is. On, on one level, it can be unhelpful if you're just doing it out of kind of like, oh, well, I just have to go through the motions. But if you're doing it in the same way that someone who really wants to be the best pianist they can is repeating their scales, actually repeating the creed week after week, I believe in God the Father, creator, of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, and so on, so on. If you're doing that week in, week out, that becomes a habit. It, be it changes you. It changes the way you think. Kneeling to pray. Actually, the physical action of regularly kneeling to pray changes you because what it does is it, it puts your body in a place where it says, I'm going to make, I am going to acknowledge with my body the sovereignty of God at this point. And on one level, if you're approaching it in a wrong way, it can just be kind of dead ritual. If you're approaching it in the same way that someone who wants to become the amazing pianist, actually, at that point, it builds habits into the way that you think. I think that's a really, really great lecture, and I'd encourage you guys to, um, to get hold of that. If you want to go onto YouTube at some point after the conference, he's really, really helpful thinker. Um, don't be scared of liturgy. Don't be scared of like pre-written prayers. Some of them are so great. If you kind of look at some of the... I, I can't remember the whole, the whole prayer by, I think, Archbishop Cramner or something like that. We have, we have sinned in thought and deed and action. For this, we are truly sorry. Forgive, and then it's just it's this thing that you can learn off by heart, but actually the action of habituating yourself with that, and also just good habits. Think kind of like, what, what's the first thing you do when you get up in the morning? What's the, what's the first thing you read? Who's the what's the first thing you're going to think about? Are you going to actively train yourself to have godly habits and that will very often change your mindset a lot um so i mean there are some obvious tips of stuff like what's your diet like what kind of things are you reading what kind of things are you letting in which i think are probably the classic examples that we think of when it comes to renewing our mind and so on but i think that that idea of developing habits and the things that we physically do and things that we repeat over and over again with the aim of renewing our minds actually I think is really helpful and really important for us, particularly as charismatics, because we're very often scared of any kind of repetitive thing because it feels like it's squashing freedom. And I think actually what repetition does for someone who's, who's doing their scales is it allows them then to be completely free to play however they want. 
is a really good illustration for this by a guy called Tom Wright, who um, gave, gave the illustration. There was a, a um, I think uh, at some point there was a Boeing 747 that had to land in the Hudson River, in um, was it New York Hudson River, isn't it? Yeah, um, and because they're one of the engines blew, and um, Tom Wright said at that point what happens is years and years of habits and of repetitive actions kick into gear in the pilot. And he's able to steer the plane around and land and keep everyone safe. And the reason isn't that at that point he suddenly thought, oh, I'm going to think very hard about the manual. He'd habituated himself over years and years and years of practice so that his mind had become completely, his mindset was different and he knew how to land that plane. So I think I'll probably end there in terms of the, uh, the, the advice. I think you could probably all, all think of good practical ways of doing that. But I thought, wanted to particularly highlight those two. And as a result, what happens is that we end up building these kind of things in our churches, but it also means that your whole approach to life changes. The more you look at stuff through the right lenses, the more your actions change, the more you're able to walk straight. And so whether that is in a church gathered context where these kind of things come out, or whether that's in the workplace with your work colleagues, where you actually start naturally finding yourself talking about God a lot more because you've built the habit of doing that. Actually, as we build good habits of thinking and as we develop a gospel-centered mind, um, that then it leads to the point where we become used to the fact of thinking, this is what it looks like to live in new creation, even though at the moment we are still in the old creation. We're living in the overlap of the ages. I want to make sure that my mind is new creation focused. So I'm going to focus on the gospel Focus on, in fact, actually where I will finish is to say this is probably the biggest piece of advice is consider Jesus. Consider what Jesus has done. That is pretty much always the way that Paul encourages his people to develop the mindset of Christ. Think about Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a slave. You know those old WWJD ba um, bands that young people used to wear? There's a, there's a lot of not... You don't necessarily have to wear a band, but that mindset, actually, it sounds cheesy, but it's actually a very good way of thinking. What would Jesus do in this context? Try to think of a story in the Gospels where Jesus dealt with something like this. And focusing on Jesus and building a habit of rituals and habits that help us to focus on what did Jesus do, help us to develop a gospel-centered mind, which then leads to this. We develop the, the part of the iceberg under the water, which then means that our lives end up getting changed as a result. And we are nearly out of time, so I will hand over to Steph, who's got a bit of application. Was that a bit of a roundup? But thanks for listening, guys. And uh, see you later. Oh, we have a microphone coming. For 30 seconds, talk among yourselves about things you found interesting. <laughs> I've always wanted to do this, walk down the aisle with the mic talking when I'm not in front of people. Dream come true. Uh, hashtag, boom. Okay. Um, I haven't got loads to add. Um, Dan's really served us well. Thank you so much. Um, there's, you, could all, you could do days, weeks, and months on this. You know, it's massive. So try to, try to keep, uh, try to imbibe and embrace the, the main principles. I think maybe just the one comment I will make at the end is, is just hammering home hammering home this idea, which I think maybe is quite new to a lot of us, which is that um, that, it, that our actions change our mind as much as our mind affects our actions. I just think it's quite a new thought, perhaps, for, for many of us. And I, I just think, particularly as charismatics, where we, 
we can tend to have a default to sort of wait, wait for a moment in God, a touch from God in some way that will, that will change us. I think we're all familiar with that idea and comfortable with it, and rightly so, it's not a wrong idea at all. But I think sometimes perhaps it can lead us to a place of unnecessary paralysis. You're waiting for a moment, and actually God's, God's just saying, um, consider Jesus, copy him. Does that make sense? So it's not to decry or to uh, de- depreciate in any way you know, those moments in God where we're just touched and there's a breakthrough. We need to really pursue those. I'm absolutely endorsing that. But I think I'm also endorsing you know, uh, just a, a rigorous kind of um, action. Ta- let's be people of action. Let's say, okay, you know, um, I want to be, become a person of prayer. You know? So if, what am I going to do? I'm going to pray. <laughs> I'm going to pray. I want to become someone who really believes in prayer. I'll pray. And then when I hit walls like this is really hard, and at that point the, 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 the wrong narrative which says my life should be easy, I resist that. That's not a gospel way of thinking, is it? And I pr- press through in prayer. And I become a person of prayer with many stories of answered prayers. Does that make sense? So I'm just wanting to, I think, urge us with, with whatever things the Holy Spirit has highlighted through um, our study in Corinthians today or other things yesterday that came up. Let's be, let's be doers and look for the Holy Spirit to really meet us in that place and empower us and help us to do it. Is that okay? Does that make sense? Yeah? That's it. We're done. It's four o'clock and um, time for dinner and leg stretching and... Um, Resting and, and relaxing, but remember to be back here for uh, 6.45, start for our prayer meeting tonight. God bless. Thanks, guys.